Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast where I bring the best and the brightest from the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. Folks, I am super excited to have my guest today as I've been a tremendous fan of his over the last couple of years. Chris Doe, the founder of Blind and Emmy Award-winning Motion Design Studio, which he ran for over two decades. Since founding Blind back in 2014, Chris reluctantly made his first YouTube video, which we'll talk about, which altered the trajectory of his life and his career. And a few years later, he founded The Future, which is a beloved education company and podcast with millions of fans from all over the world. Now he dedicates his life to his mission of teaching 1 billion people how to make a do make a living doing what they love. Chris is a remarkable guy that comes from an incredible background, and I'm excited to unpack his career, life, and journey. So let's do this. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. Excited to be here. I am excited to have you, man. And we were talking beforehand. It's always kind of funny when, you know, a, a good host does their homework and research is important to anything that you do because it comes through in the quality of the product. And it also is showing your listeners and audience that you give a shit, right, by doing it and paying respect to the guest. And I've been spending the last four days literally immersed in your podcast, immersed in your YouTube content. And then when you get a guest on screen, you're like, oh, there, there, there he is. So anyone who does not know Chris... Um, Fascinating background, and you guys could spend time on his podcast. It's a two-parter. I think it's episode 117 and 118 where the tables are turned and his team interviews him. But could you explain to my listeners a little bit about your background, specifically you know, the journey coming from Vietnam over to the States and what that was like? How, how old were you at the time when you made that journey? And we're talking, mm -hmm. what, late 70s? Yeah. End of the Vietnam War? Yes, it's April 30th, 1975. The United States decides to pull out of Vietnam. Country collapses within 24 hours. And my parents scramble to get us out of there. And it's a harrowing tale of how we're able to get out. And I'm three years old at this time, so I have no memory of Vietnam, my home country. I've never been back. Everybody in my family, my two brothers, my parents have been back multiple times. But it seems like I'm not, uh, it's not in the cards for me. We had planned to go to Vietnam uh, right before COVID had happened. And it was all in the works. My wife had made this wonderful plan two weeks, three weeks in Vietnam. And she had to make the decision like this. This seems very serious. We need to cancel our trip. And so that trip will have to wait. In due time. Yeah. And in and, and, and the right time for sure. But I think what's really interesting is, you know, looking back on it now, the journey that you've come would you have like even imagined it any other way? I mean, how has that really helped to shape and define who you are being an it, immigrant? Yeah. You know, in the moment, it doesn't feel great. It's only in retrospect, in hindsight, that you understand that all these trials and tribulations made you who you are. I'm a big Game of Thrones fan, so I'm going to throw one reference out right now. Brandon Stark is like the three-eyed raven. Sorry, spoiler Spoiler alerts, everybody. And it seems like he's had a really rough life, being pushed out the window, falling and becoming um, handicapped. But all those experiences made him who he is. And so when people at the end of their journey, they come to apologize to him, say, I'm sorry for doing that to you. His response is quite remarkable and a lesson we all can learn. And he says something to the effect of, I would not be here if those things didn't happen. I, I still would have been Brandon Stark. And Jamie Lannister asked him, well, who are you now? He's like, I'm the th three-eyed raven. And he's transformed. He's transcended who he was. And so I think we are often tested in life with trials and tribulations, uh, some of our own doing, some out of our control. What we need to do is just to be in the moment, to understand that these things make us stronger, and we need to grow and learn from those experiences. I love it. And, and, I, and I call those calluses. 
mm. and they're internal calluses that build up a protection that make you stronger from the next time you get burned, the next time that nail pokes through and, and, and catches you on the finger. And I absolutely love that story. And another piece that really inspired me about the journey is your father's journey. I mean, yeah. he came over here and he was, correct me if I'm wrong, he was bussing tables and he managed mm -hmm. to work himself into the position of a chief engineer at a semiconductor co company in, in Silicon Valley. How the heck did that happen? I'd love if you could shed some light on your dad's journey and how that inspired you in your own course of, uh, of life. You know, the funny thing is, um, all my life growing up, I didn't know what my dad did. I, I knew that he disappeared in the morning at the crack of dawn and I knew he came back when the sun went down. And it's not until many decades later do I understand what my dad went through. Uh, it was a conversation with um, my, my, my two boys at uh, one of our family gatherings when they were poking and prodding and asking him questions that it never had occurred to me to ask. And I made this silly comment like, so dad, you, you were a waiter at a restaurant? He goes, I was not a waiter. You, you can't get a job at a restaurant if you don't speak the language. So I was bussing tables. And he said that he befriended the bartender and learned how to make drinks because the bartender uh, was kind to him. It's like, here's a guy who's hustling. So he learned how to drink unofficially and he was making them. And so That's I didn't great. know this about my dad's past either because he was mixing drinks. I'm like, where did this skill come from? But he grew up in America or he came up in America in a time when you didn't necessarily have to have a college degree. Of course, all those things changed rapidly thereafter. So he'd go to night school. Full circle. Yeah, he'd go to night school all the time. He was always learning. And the thing about my dad is we, we call him Mr. Fix-It because he has this kind of mind that can solve problems. And it's quite interesting because those are the skills that you need to survive and thrive in the 21st century, to not to be stuck to a way of learning, but a way of how to learn and to be able to solve things you have yet to see. And that's my dad. I love it. That's a tremendous. And, and how funny is it that your kids are the ones who brought that question at them, those ahas, those stories. We, we don't know everything about our parents. And I love that moment of discovery with them that um, Jesse Etzer talks about this all the time in regards to having parents and, and their aging and everything that the clock is moving faster. And I, I don't know about you. I still have this vision in my head of I, I just turned 43. I have this vision in my head of my parents at 43. And I'm like, holy shit, I was 14 at that time. And my kids are much younger at this time. Like, Time is moving fast and we don't have a lot of time with them to really utilize that time with our parents while we still have them for those of us that are, that are lucky to have them. Yeah. What do you, what do you think, Chris, is the, 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 the biggest thing you learned about your dad as far as parenting that you apply to your fatherhood skills? Um, my, my dad is the oldest male in a, like many brothers and sisters and he unfortunately lost his dad when he was young and it changed his life. Again, I discovered these things much after the fact, I'm talking to one of my uncles and he said, so here's the thing, when our father died, all the children cried and mourned the loss of their father. But your father in particular wasn't allowed to mourn because now he had to be the man of the house. So during the funeral, he his face and his eyes was dry where everyone else was crying and bawling their eyes out. And it changed your father. And so my dad is a very stoic person and he is very measured and thoughtful in the way that he would parent us is instead of re re reverting to like corporal punishment, like when we got out of hand and we did get out of hand quite often, he would just sit me down and he would talk to me. He'd ask Socratic questions and, and get me to think through what it is I was doing. And when I was much younger, I used to just pray and wish for like, just slap me. Uh, punish me, get this over with because these hour long conversations are just dreadful. And he, you <laughs> know, <works>. he, yeah, <laughs> you know, you choose your He's poison, torture. right? Yeah. Uh, the, the thing about my dad was he wanted us to understand the consequences of our decisions and our actions. And he would use questions to get us to process what was going on. And I didn't like it at that time, but it really shaped me. So my dad's stoicism his way of asking Socratic questions and leading you to an answer and getting you to discover it for yourself is a life skill. And this is what I use in my business is how I teach, but it's also how I teach my children. I was literally just about to say that for anyone who has had the, the opportunity um, to check out any of Chris's courses. I mean, this is literally what you apply. And I think it's that pragmatic 
no nonsense approach, straightforward, how to get the results. Um, and, and there's a, I don't know if it's a quote, it's just more of your approach is that you take things to the extreme logical conclusion. Right. And I think that if you're in business and if you're challenged with something and if you want to learn something, this cuts out all the fluff and all the bullshit in the middle. And that's why your approach to teaching resonates so deeply with me. So I implore everyone to check out Chris's stuff. We'll do that plug at the end of it, but that really resonates deep with me. But back to your personal story. And listen, I'm going to, I'm going to glaze over this because Chris does a great job of this in his own podcast. If you want to go super deep into his story and I want to use this time to talk about some things that really stood out to me. Um, and if you don't mind sharing about, there's been a number of toxic relationships in your life that have helped define you. And again, it goes back to that moment, Chris, you said before, you don't know it during that time, how it's going to affect you. But looking back, and I'd love to, if you could share some of those lessons learned and how they help shape your future and your present. You talking about my girlfriend? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about this shitty breakup. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, when I was growing up, I had strange romantic ideas of how I was going to fall in love with a girl and that the first person I fell in love with, I was going to marry and that was going to be like happily ever after. And so I, I was more in love with the idea than anything else. And so when I did meet mm. this girl and and she was very different than all the other girls I had met. And I'm not saying I was like some young playboy. I was not. Uh, there were some girls who were interested in me, but the more they were interested in me, the less interested I was in them. And, and Christine was this girl who was like a little aloof, a coy and, and somewhat distant. And, and that's the one that, that kind of captured my heart. And so once I fell for her, it was just too late. I was just too deep into the relationship. And Christine, despite being the same age as me, was much more mature, came from a family that was wealthy. They owned supermarkets. And so I was experiencing many things on, on different levels. Uh, they she would take me out to eat like at, at like a black Angus restaurant, which we grew up middle class. I, like I didn't eat there with my parents. Right. And fancy she would, shit. yeah, she, yeah. Fancy back then. Right. It's like, Oh, the good stuff. Okay. So she'd tell me like, this is the kind of steak you would order. And this is how you would have it prepared medium rare and ever this, and you would have this. And so she was not only my girlfriend, she was also educating me on life and how to live in a certain way. But it was a toxic relationship because she knew she had me wound tightly around her fingertips and whatever she wanted, I did. And it was not the healthiest way to to be in a relationship because we were not of equals. She was obviously holding the upper hand on many different levels, financially, uh, socially, culturally. She had experienced more things than I had. And uh, it, it was a really rough relationship. And correct me if I'm wrong, as the story goes, when that relationship ended, you, mm -hmm. I don't know if it was a vow of celibacy, but you took some time off from playing <laughs> the field to focus on the work. And it's one of those things you look back on, you're like, thank God I did that because that really set you up for that next phase of your life, right? Yeah. So the problem is with Christine, I, I obsessed over her night and day. I thought about her and it wasn't reciprocated. So I was kind of in emotional turmoil. And instead of focusing on, my schoolwork, which what my parents wanted me to do, I was thinking about her. And and because of that, as a consequence, I didn't get into any of the schools that I applied to. I like to tell people uh, I applied to two UCs. I applied to UCLA and UC San Diego. And the only UC I got into was UC what happens when you don't focus on your school. <laughs> so I went to community college and I was supposed to be super focused. And again, I was a little distracted. And right. it, when when we ultimately split up, I was like, you know what? My life was meant for more than this. I need to get serious about my work. And so I made a commitment to myself that I went down this dark path. I'm never going to go down there again. So for the next two, three, four years, I'm going to make it my mission, my sole purpose to be the best design student I can be. And so that meant no more relationships, just focused on the schoolwork. I love it. That's, that's tremendous. And it's, and I mean, listen to each their own out there, but I really do. I do truly believe that there's times in our life, Chris, when we have to hit rock bottom yeah. in relationships in life. And there's no stronger foundation to build on than rock bottom yeah. than, than that flat plateau and work your way up and to pull yourself up and kind of redefine it. Um, at a professional curiosity from a design perspective, who inspires you? What artists, what graphic designers out there, who gets, who, who do you look up towards? Who's always kind of been your Mount Rushmore from a design perspective? It, it's changed over the years, Adam. So I will tell you who I, who are my design heroes back in the day. 
before I knew any better. I was really infatuated with the work from Neville Brody, British designer, uh, the works of David Carson, who was really making quite a bit of noise in those early days with Beach Culture magazine and then later on Raygun magazine, just experimenting with things. I've always admired the works of early graphic designers, the Russian constructivists, Alexander Rochenko and Elisitsky. Uh, they were the pioneers of graphic design. Later on, I found out about the Swiss modern designers like Herbert Bayer, Herbert Matter, um, Wolfgang Weingart, and, and other Swiss designers. And that's really when I started to blossom and mature as a creative person. It's interesting too. And you talk a lot about borrowing versus stealing in your work too. How much of that goes into your creative work, inspiration versus borrowing and stealing? I, I think it's pretty natural to steal and borrow and copy when we're learning. What we have to do is we have to learn to graduate from that and not to use works that are derivative as examples of our own creativity. Um, the way that you learn how to draw is you you copy the masters. You You try your best to make it indistinguishable from a master. And so for graphic designers, what you do is you you start to understand how to use grid systems, sorry, understand how to use grid systems and layout. And you're, you're making the same choices that they made because you admire the work. And then when you're able to, you apply it to a different problem. And hopefully some of those lessons stick with you. It's interesting you say that, you know, people ask me, you know, as a, as a podcast host who inspires you, and it always goes back for me to Howard Stern, and we're not talking about mm -hmm. the dirty, you know, porn Howard Stern with the strippers, but when he went over to satellite radio and he was able to have this unfiltered platform and could have shows as long as he wanted, he would have these long form interviews and he would just open it up and it'd be just a conversation like we're having right now. So my early days of doing the podcast, I kind of borrowed or stole a lot of his kind of mannerisms and, and affects and effects. And then I said, you know what, I need to, as I learned how to infuse more of my own personality into it and form my own style. And it's just a fantastic example of that. So let's talk about starting the agency, right? Blind Inc., you know, directly out of college. What did you know about the business side of opening an agency? Or did you kind of have this romantic idea again of what an agency is supposed to be? I don't know anything about business. In in fact, I barely made it through my marketing class at Art Center because I was thinking, why do I need to learn how to market? Isn't it all about the work? And if the work is good enough, people will find you. So that's the <laughs> biggest myth that creative people tell themselves, right? Right. That's a big no, no. And when I started my business, it was mostly driven on self-belief and naive, being naive about how businesses um, happen. And I did it before I should have been, uh, should have started a business. I did it before I was ready. And it was a rough couple of, for you know, the first couple of years were really rough. Uh, just not knowing how to bid, not knowing how to get clients or representation. Which was pricing. It was really, really important for us to grow our, our nascent agency. But it's interesting, too, because I'm going through that now with a new division of my company. Sometimes you need to build the plane as you're flying it, right? Because the only way to be an expert at something is by doing it. If you wait on the sideline and you wait for your freaking chance to do it, then you're not even gonna have the opportunity. Let's go back to those early days of the agencies. What is one of those big lessons learned that you're glad, maybe it was a big screw up, maybe it was a, a mistake with a client that had to happen in order to set you, you on the right path forward? Oh, there's so many mistakes. Uh, what, what happened in those early days where we were invited to bid and pitch against much more experienced companies and people. And every single time we'd pitch, we would lose. And I couldn't figure out why, uh, because I had not seen it done by anybody and I wasn't trained on how to pitch and win. And one of the most embarrassing right. things that I can recall was we we're on the phone with Shiat Day. They're the agency behind Apple and they had Nissan as an account, Nissan Motors. And they asked us to mm -hmm. um, bid on a project. And I remember after the creative team from the agency briefed us on what was going on on a conference call, I didn't even know what to say. So I said some of the dumbest things like, oh, that's a clever tagline. I get it. And they're, I just can't even imagine what the heck they were thinking after the call. Like, who the heck put this guy on the phone? You know, that was just me. It's like, I didn't even know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know what the rules of engagement are. And so I'm just bumbling my way through this as a 22, 23 year old person, not knowing anything and working potentially on multi-billion dollar brands. How much doubt did you have back then 
And how did you work through that kind of insecurity to get to a place where you, you talk a lot about confidence now. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that journey, that confidence journey. Yeah. I, it's I, hard when you're young, you make mistakes. How do you stay strong? Yeah. I was really confident in the design and the topography that I learned through school. I had many opportunities to practice, put in my hundred or thousands of hours doing that. But when it came to working on commercials and animation, I was really out of my depth, out of my league there. And I always felt at that time, probably a little entitled, like if they just gave me the opportunity, I would do a good job. And I didn't deserve the opportunity because I couldn't convince another person uh, that they should invest tens of thousands of dollars with some kid out of school. And it was a long learning process of figuring out what the game was about and developing my skills and confidence in animation and motion design. Yeah, it's tough. And you had to you had to learn that there. Was there that one moment, that one project that you won that really gave you that confidence? Because listen, we all need the wins. It's an important yeah. part of our our DNA. It's um affirmation that we're going down the right path. It helps build confidence. Where's it that one project that hit you like, yep, we got this. I'm on the right path. Um I didn't know it at the time, but it was the job that was going to change our professional careers moving forward. I was working with um, a smaller agency at that time on some local dealer spots for, for Mitsubishi Motors, and they needed these titles that came up and animated in a way that was interesting. And you've seen these kinds of commercials before when they're saying, put no money down this amount of payment for 36 months at this APR. We've seen those and they're, they tend to be kind of right. very boring information on the screen. So I did what I knew how to do, which was to lay it out in an interesting way and add some movement to draw interest to it. And I wound up doing something like 26 or 27 titles. And what had happened was the agency added more titles to this and they didn't offer to pay us anymore. So I finished doing that work and I was thinking, I was feeling a little bit bitter and thinking to myself, I never want to work with them again because they had changed the scope and they didn't even acknowledge the fact that the scope had changed. But a really great thing that happened was this smaller agency had been doing these local spots and they were given the national account for Mitsubishi Motors. And when they got that, they gave us all that work. So now instead of working on some dealer spots doing super boring, prosaic things, I was now working right. on things that my friends and family would see on TV. And that was a big deal. But the the coolest part that came from this was now we had cred, we had street cred, and I could leverage that that project to go and get uh, a sales rep. And that was what was necessary for us to get work because I didn't know anything about sales. Like an agent. Mm -hmm. An agent. Yeah, you need, someone, you need someone to get out there. The podcast is brought to you in partnership with Venturi, the recruitment operating system, the all-in-one tech platform purposely built for recruitment and staffing to unify your front, middle, and back office operations. Venturi is designed by recruiters for recruiters. Both the company and the platform are the unique creations of successful recruiters who sold their business, saw a need for a better recruitment tech, and made it happen. And if you're looking to upgrade your recruitment tech and give your recruiters a new modern operating system, visit venturi.io slash podcast. That's V-I-N-C-E-R-E dot I-O backslash p-o-z-c-a-s-t for an exclusive offer thanks you talk a lot about hiring and and, and how how it's changed for you now versus then what mm -hmm. were some of those you know early again going back to miss of a way you thought you needed to hire versus now where you understand the right way to hire well i gotta tell you i was afraid to hire people in the beginning because i was Why? dreading the moment like if it doesn't work out how am i going to get rid of this person so I didn't hire because I was afraid to fire. And it took a long time to learn how to do that. I also, uh, back then, there, there, there wasn't like a deep talent pool that of people coming out of school who knew how to do what it is that we did. So I had to kind of groom people and teach them something that I was just learning myself and making sure that they could do the work. So uh, back then, we, we kind of just put warm bodies against the work trained a few people up mm -hmm. and the ones who could make it, we would keep on for longer periods of time. And the other ones who couldn't, we had to let go. But it was just through this process of bringing in a, a bunch of, I guess, and I say this lovingly, a bunch of misfits and trying to get them to do corporate commercial work at very, with like at very high stakes. Well, it's interesting too, right? You throw it, you have, you have faith in people there and, and how much, how many times did you, was your bet wrong? 
And then you now you're going to put him in the position as a business owner, not just the artist, the graphic artist behind the scenes. Where you're like, shit, now I got to go clean up this mess. And those are the, those are the, for me as a business owner, as a solopreneur, those are the toughest lessons when you have to own the mistakes. And a lot of people have a big problem with that going into entrepreneurship. Yeah, I, I can cite one example that will probably make everyone cringe a little bit. So I hired this cringe. young man who had graduated from a, a master's program at a notable school and he had all this wonderful layered, creative, crazy creative work in there. And now he's has been trained in animation and cinematography where I was not. I was mostly self-taught on that stuff. And so we wound up doing a project for Nike and as crazy as it sounds, this is like our third project for Nike. It wasn't like this is our first time at it. And somehow he had talked himself into directing and shooting the project for me and operating somehow. the camera. He's like, I know how to do this kind of stuff. And he was moving the camera oh, no. in, in ways that were like unusable. So we had this footage. It's avant-garde, Chris. <laughs> I, I wish I could say it. It was just amateur hour. You know, and and he was used to using different equipment and all that kind of stuff. And now I've spent my budget. You know, we booked the stage, we have the camera, we have the film, it's been processed. And I'm sitting in the in the post-production bay, which I think at that time was a thousand dollars an hour, thinking to myself, Oh my God, is this the footage? And and the artists that were working on that on the project, they didn't know how to tell me that this footage is practically unusable. So they had to go back in, pull stills from the footage and digitally kind of animate it and repaint frames hand like just Yikes. frame at a time. And it was just so painful. And I was, I knew like, I'm never going to make that mistake again. I have to be sure. And I was feeling a little insecure because this person was coming in way more educated than me. Interesting. Flushing out uh, aptitude versus attitude versus ability. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something interesting with some of the culture. I mean, a buzzword that I hate these days is culture fit. I really believe in culture harmony. And I and I use the analogy all the time of a quilt, right? We're all of different backgrounds, textiles, strains, colors. But when you put it together, it makes it strong and you pull back and it's a beautiful quilt. I'll save that analogy for another time. Um, but how do you how do you listen? Some people call it the beer test or the barbecue test. How do you how, how do you hire people that you want to work with? Well, in the early days, I hired hotshots. I hired the people who had the best portfolios or reels, who who were the most credentialed, at least uh, from what I can see as evidenced by their body of work. Later on, I realized those hotshots come with a heavy price tag. Uh, many of them are mm -hmm. prima donnas. Uh, some of them have high levels of insecurity and they, they they create a lot of drama wherever they go. And I was willing to pay that price at the beginning of my career because I wanted their talent. And they were very talented people. It's just that it was a nightmare to work with. Um, and it, it just, there was just so much chaos at the office. And it became, once again, quite toxic for me. While mm. I was getting coaching from my my business coach at that time, he pointed this out to me. He's like, the reason why you are unhappy is because there are people here who don't share your values, who who bring a lot of drama with them. And and he's like um, a survivor of um, alcoholic parents and an Al-Anon member because he can recognize this kind of behavior. So he said, what we need to do is we need to figure out what your values are and hire and fire based on those values. And so that meant some of these hotshots had to go as much as it was going to hurt me and, and my, my, my sales reps at that time were just like, Chris, you got to just, you, you can't let them go. They're, they're superstars. And they're I said, business. I understand yeah. what your needs are, but I'm trying to take care of the needs of my entire team and this is not going to work. So we had to let go of some of the, the best artists and designers that I've ever worked with to preserve the culture, to make sure that we had a good, healthy company that was going to be um, collaborative and supportive of one another versus super competitive in, in the ugliest ways. And that's a tremendous, tremendous leadership lesson, lesson there. So switching gears, what was the impetus for kind of making a, a, a slight right-hand turn and going into the world of education and, you know, launching the future and this mission of, you know, learning and empowering a billion people? What was, was it, was it an, an, one of those things where it picked up steam or was it like, hey, woke up one morning or stayed up late one night and that spark went off in your head. It's a lot like this. I think sometimes we walk around with ideas, but we don't know how to properly express them. And we're waiting for the 
for things to align so that we can express them. I had been teaching at Art Center for, I think at that point, almost 15 years and thinking to myself, is there more to this? And my, my wife then confirms to me in a, in a conversation while we're driving home uh, from school one day. And she said, you know, is there more that you want to do? Do you ever get tired of doing the same thing over and over again? And she's a big supporter of mine. And she says she's my number one fan. It's debatable. But she said, you have a gift at teaching. I feel like it's being contained uh, in a very small classroom right now. But I didn't know what the solution was. And, and I start to dabble with like, can we do this online? But I just don't really know how. It's around this time that I run into an old schoolmate of, uh, of mine. His name is Jose Caballer. And, and he is instrumental in pushing me over that cliff of saying, let's, let's make content together. So that's like in January of 2014, he's like, let's make YouTube videos, Chris. Yep. I was like, oh, I don't know about that, Jose. <laughs> but he convinced me and I wound up doing it. And then those parts align. Here's a massive platform for you to teach on. You love teaching. These things should go together like peanut butter and jelly. And it didn't gel at the beginning. It was rough because I'm not an on-air kind of talent person. It took a while for me to find my confidence and my voice. Yeah, and that's an interesting point too. And and I and I had a little bit of that hesitation as well. And I and especially in video too, to find the confidence and kind of do that. And it comes down to kind of pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. I mean, what tips what tactical tips would you give somebody who has the same feeling? They have an idea and it's and it's gonna be expressed in a creative way, whether it be audio or video, to step out of their comfort zone and just do it and hit that record button. Well, first of all, we know this and it's a it's a meme almost at this point. There's the box that you live in that you play in. It's a pretty tight box. And all the magic happens on the outside of that box. Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about this in one of his talks mm-hmm. in Masterclass. He said, like, there's this, uh, when we walk up to the edge of the force of our knowledge, we don't know what's outside of that. But when we step outside, the force expands to meet us where we're at. And this is a really cool thing. And all of us, I think, desire growth in, and, and, uh, and new experiences. But what we don't do is we don't try those new things because we're afraid of failure. We're afraid that someone out in the universe is going to point to us and say, see, I told you, you were not good enough. You couldn't do this. Who do you think you are? And we let that voice be the guiding principle behind why we make decisions or why we don't take action. My business coach told me, he says, Chris, you need to do public speaking because right now, you have this gift, but no one knows it. And you're like the best kept secret. And so you got to go out there. And I was afraid. <laughs> I was clinging on to the side of the pool saying, I don't want to go to the deep end. But in that moment, his challenge pushed me to go and do public speaking. And again, you suck at it for a while. Terrible. Just did all the things you're not supposed to do. And you go home thinking that was a near disaster, but I'm still alive. And just like our story at the beginning, all these trials and tribulations they start to form the character of who you are if you get yourself up and you keep moving forward and you do and eventually you get less bad at the things that you do and sometimes yep. you might even be good it's amazing i have my first major speaking gig coming up in major major speaking gig coming up in london and i'm preparing for it now and i'm like and it's like a kind of like a rock and roll event too it's like outdoors it's it's not as stuffy as a as a conference room and i'm like i need to be able to play into that vibe where I'm actually going to feel more comfortable, like using that as almost a safety net, that it's going to be in an environment that I like, but I'm scared, man. I, yeah. I'm not lying to you. I, it's going to be a, it's going to be a big one and I got to prepare for that, but let's getting back to it. You know, you talk about this mission to teach 1 billion people how to make a doing what they love without losing their soul. <laughs> let's break down the last part of that. Lo- where does that come from without losing your soul? Does that mean doing shit that you hate that you suck at? Like where, where does that part come in? And does that really mean entrepreneurship? Not working for the man? Yeah. Well, the losing your soul part comes in this. And there's a a cultural phenomenon where when artists are successful, like say musicians are successful, the thing that we do is we feel distant from them because we knew them at a time in which they were playing in small gigs. It was intimate. And now they're successful. So we Mm -hmm. apply this label of they sold out. They sold out. And so creative people, my, my tribe, my community there's an unhealthy relationship with money and success. They don't know how to deal with it. And so when they make some money, they feel guilty about it. 
uh, they feel a sense of shame and they don't want to talk about it and they feel undeserving of that. And so I have to help address this by saying you can have what you want in your life. You can provide for your family. You can have a future, especially when you're not able to do your art and craft anymore, that you have some money to fall back on and it's okay to do this. And as I do workshops and I speak on this, the the thing, people have such an unhealthy relationship with success and money. I have to help them overcome those, those ideas. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a tough one. So in, in, in your work and building out the coursework for the future and having so many incredible conversations and, and, and teaching so many, what has been the challenge for you on, on the business side? I mean, this is an alternative to, and we'll talk about it in a second. You talked once about uh, recently about building a legacy of this being an alternative to college. W- what has been that kind of business strategy challenge or is everything going the right way for you with this? Right the now, hesitations. The, yeah, things are going really well. Um, they started really slowly for context in 2014 when we started this education company. I think we did something like $18,000 in revenue for the entire year. And then fast forward seven, six, what is it, 2014, seven, eight years later, last year we did $4.5 million in revenue. And I'm a big believer in just doing the work, showing up every single day. Now we grew tremendously year to year. And the only reason why we did it was because we were starting off so low. Like we grew 300% every year up until a certain point. So the following year we did more than three, three times the sales. And each time you do that, you feel motivated like, if I don't give up on this, if I keep figuring this game out, I will have success eventually. And no one was there to kind of uh, show us the blueprint. Some of this is relatively new uh, and no one to take me under their wings as, as been the case in my entire life. You can just figure things out. You align yourself around people that you think know what they're doing and you exactly you innovate. And so, yeah, it's heading in the right direction. However, I'm not the world's most patient person I want to pour gasoline on this. I want to set it on fire, right? Uh, I, I don't know if you know. Do you know Gary Vaynerchuk? Do you know of I him? used to work for Gary V. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> so it's it's no I, secret. I have, him on, I have him on speed dial. <laughs> there we go. Okay. So Gary Vaynerchuk <laughs> has expressed this in multiple formats that he wants to make enough money so he can buy the New York Jets. That's mm-hmm. his childhood dream, right? And It's going to happen. And he's clarified on Twitter that it's not really about owning the jets it's about the person you become in the pursuit of that goal and you have to think big you have to act big the journey is important for him and i think about this a lot and i I was thinking i want to be so successful that i have enough money to buy the school that i went to art center and i think i need probably a little bit more than 100 million dollars to be able to do that because i want to change the school system and right now at four and a half million dollars in revenue, it's going to be some time before I get there. So yeah, sure I want to accelerate this. <laughs> yeah. Accelerate this. I love, I love having those goals, those big, hairy, audacious goals. Cause that's mm-hmm. what, those are the goalposts, right? To use a football yep. analogy from Gary Vee. I mean, the thing is between you and I, I think with all these NFT projects, he's kind of building that war chest to buy the jet sooner than later. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. I want to talk about a, a, a recent LinkedIn post talking about content. Well, actually let me pause and let me rewind for a second here. Going back to that story, let's talk about the importance, the community element around what you're building with the future that is that fuel, the importance of community. And I know for me, a big mistake as a podcaster was, I like to use the analogy of the plumber with the broken toilet in his own house. Like, I know what I needed to do, but I didn't do it when I started my podcast, building the community, and now I have to work backwards from it. And, and luckily, I'm doing that. But talk about the importance of this, because they're, they're your brand ambassadors, they're the ones out there advocating for, for, for the content and the work that you're doing out there. Let's talk about the importance of community. Okay, I'll put this out there, right? And this is not going to be a surprise to anybody who's ever heard me speak before. I'm a strange, introverted, awkward dude socially. I'm just going to put that out there. So the idea of community, if you told me 20 years ago, Chris, you're going to build a community of <laughs> thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people, I would have looked for the exit and ran the opposite direction. Peace and out. I don't even think of it as community. What I think about is I'm here mostly because of the of uh, a country who welcomed my family in and for the opportunities I was afforded and I've been able to achieve more than I ever dreamt possible in every every category, every metric and every measurement. I've been able to do that. 
And I feel a sense of obligation and duty to help other people because without the kindness of strangers, my parents would still be in Vietnam or somewhere else today. And I, I carry this with me, whether it's right or wrong or whatever, I carry it. And my, my general idea here is I need to help others and share what it is that I've learned along my way to save people from either pain or to help them to achieve their goal faster. And I do this mostly through social platforms that are entirely free. Of course, we have courses and workshops that I run, but I try and help others that way. And I, I make this analogy to people. You put a piece of information in a bottle, you're on a deserted island, you cast it into the ocean, and it eventually winds up on the shore and somebody picks it up and they read this piece of information and their life is transformed. Except for in the digital social media age, I'm not throwing out one bottle. The one bottle multiplies in infinite ways and reaches multiple shores and people pick things up. Some people don't pick them up and then their their lives are transformed. And in the, in the kind of grander scheme of things, the law of reciprocity is in play here. So I help them get through a dark spot in their life. You mentioned your wife a little bit earlier or someone figure out a business problem that they've not been able to sort out prior to that moment in time. And they're able to better their lives, support their family, their loved ones, and improve their position in the career, in their career, in their community. They feel a sense of obligation and feel indebted to us. And, and get this, I don't know if this happens to you or not, but people send me money randomly all the time. They send me money. Nope, on doesn't Venmo. happen to me ever. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, if anybody wants to, no it's AJ Poser on Venmo. Feel free to send me anything you want. Right. They just send me money. They're trying to get your attention. Now. Yeah. Right. And and there, we have a sustaining members who give us five to $25 a month for as long as they want to with no promise of getting anything else in return. We have a couple hundred of those people. And now you talk about community. So they feel connected to you because you did something. And I'm going to just um, probably, uh, you know, shots fired right now. I see so many educators who tease an idea who promise a result that's not possible in a timeline that just seems ridiculous to me, but they never actually try and teach you. What they what they do is they get you to buy into some funnel, uh, to get deep into their funnel where you feel like you got to go through with it. And using all the the social hooks and tricks, they get you to buy. And it's just, it's disgusting to me. Ah, it is. And, and I didn't know we were going to go down this path here and we won't go too deep into it. Um, it's something that irks my soul because as a native New Yorker, I could smell bullshit a mile away. And I think that there's a lot of folks out there, and I'd love to get your take on this, that are really taking advantage, especially during the pandemic of people that are out of jobs. And it's it's a snake oil. It's the, whether you call it the gold rush, those selling the shovels, making the most money, but the courses to teach courses, the funnels to teach funnels, and not what's the takeaway there? Are you just creating a, a clone of yourself in a pyramid scheme, or are you genuinely teaching somebody a skill that they could utilize as an actual business? Yeah. So here's the problem with those things. And I, I don't have a, a, a giant issue with the concept, but it's the implementation that's problematic. The courses that, that teach you how to sell courses, what they don't <laughs> disclose is you have to know something first. And that's the real problem. What's your what's your expertise that you're teaching? Yeah, you have to have some expertise. You have to have life experience. You have to have a skill set. Uh, otherwise, the implementation of this will ultimately fail. And there's a very high failure rate. And so I have no problems with people selling courses on how to sell courses. But it should be with a giant asterisk to say, do you have expertise? Do you, you have a skill? Do you have a process, a framework that people constantly are asking you to teach them that they're willing to give you real money for? If that's the case, then yes, enroll in a course. But that's the part they deliberately leave out because that's the hardest thing to teach. Yeah, and it's social media and it's where we at in 2022 and we're not gonna do anything to change it unless people stop buying it. So let's bring it home here, Chris. 2022, you have an intern standing in front of you and him or her is standing in front of you on their mm -hmm. first day of work as a graphic designer. What would you tell them that one piece of advice to be successful as a graphic designer or as a creative in this new world that we live in? I, I would reference them uh, or point them to a book uh, by Austin Kleon. It's called Show Your Work. And it's a really good blueprint on how to be successful in the 21st century knowledge and creative economy that we live in. And the basic idea is you want to do some form of public journaling. 
you want to express your ideas and articulate how you think, how you solve problems in written form, in audio or video or something like that. And in doing so, you not only build fans and a community, but you also learn a lot about how you think. And that's a really good thing. And there's this this formula. It says like wisdom equals experience plus reflection. We 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 aspire to be wise. We can't do that without experiencing things. So that means you have to go out of your comfort zone. You have to try different things. You uh, try different foods, go to different places, uh, immerse yourself in different cultures. And that's how you gain experience. But the other key component to this is reflection. Because if you experience things without thinking about them, you really not learned anything, right? Nothing. So you have to reflect. And the way that you reflect is you sit down old school is you write in your journal, like, here's what's happened to me. Here's how I'm framing this experience. I'd love to share this one quick story if we have time. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay. I just dropped a story on LinkedIn and it's because I just recently came back from Croatia. Um, a friend of mine, a professional designer, his name is I'm, James I'm, I'm shaking my head because I read this. Yeah. You I read just it. Saw it. Yeah. I just shared I love it, it, right? Go for it. Yeah, it's okay. awesome. Go for it. So I'm James Victoria. I'm going to move my mic away. There we go. Okay. So, so James Victoria... Uh, on his flight from Texas to Croatia, his luggage is gone. And I run into him like, James, what's going on? He's like, oh man, I lost my luggage. And I immediately had a panic attack. Like, oh my God, because I'm a high maintenance guy. I need lots of stuff, right? My moisturizers, my razor blade, my tie. And I need all that stuff to feel exactly who I'm supposed to be. And I was like, oh my God, thank God it happened to James and not me because James (laughs) is very comfortable in his own skin. Doesn't need a lot of things. And He's like, you know what? I had prepared this other talk, but I'm going to do the stripped down version of that talk in keeping with what's happening with me. And I thought, whoa, this is really cool. And I saw James walk around without any shoes on barefoot. And it's kind of unusual. I said, James, you know what? In keeping with that theme, you should just walk on stage barefoot. And he's like, oh, Chris, I might do that. (laughs) Fast forward to his talk. I'm a little late. So I'm like in the back kind of seeing what's going on. James is up on stage. Everybody gets up. I'm like, what is going on? And then they start waving their hand in unison, left and right. It felt like one of these uh, social uh, media videos that go viral. Everybody's doing right. it in unison. And then James starts singing it on stage. And what I thought, you know, in a room full of like 350 plus Croatians, who's going to know what the heck James is talking about? And they all sing in unison, Purple Rain. And it was like going to church. It was a phenomenal experience. And he just leaned into the chaos and was embracing the moment. And just doing this really stripped down thing. It was awesome to see. And it was a powerful lesson for me to kind of ask myself and challenge myself. If I was put in that position, how would I respond? It's just as a thought experiment to get you to understand how you're attached to things and how quickly you can become detached to those things. And you are not all those things. You are everything that's inside of you, not the things that are outside of you. And so that's the lesson. So for me, reflection plus experience equals wisdom. And I get to share that with the world. And Chris, thank you for sharing that story with us. And I want everyone to kind of pause and, and think about reflection. And, and are you truly doing that in your everyday life? I know I do it to an extent and I could do it a lot more. So Chris, let's bring it home here. What is the single greatest piece of advice that you have ever received that you take action on every single day? It's probably from my business coach, Kier McLaren. When I was working with him, he would say, say what you think. And I didn't know I could do that. So in my client interactions, there's the things that you want to ask, but you're afraid to ask because maybe you feel like unrefined and and, and silly or dumb for asking those kinds of questions, or you might be seen as too aggressive. So when I wondered what the budget was, I never asked those questions and we would dance around it all the time. And then mm-hmm. eventually I learned from his encouragement to just ask the client, like, what do you have to spend on this? And if they said a number that was really low prior to this, I would just like, hmm, okay, that's kind of weird. And now I just come out and say, I'm like, wow, that's a lot less than what I thought you were going to say. And I'm not sure how we could do what you want, given that it's a tenth of what it should be. What do you suggest we do? And this catches people off guard because they're not so used to people speaking so directly and so clearly that it messes them up. And they're like, uh, well, okay. And then they, then they tell you or they don't. And then you get a read on people and you get to decide now if you want to pursue this 
quote unquote opportunity or not. That's some solid advice right there. Speak the truth and see the magic that unfolds. And Chris, last but not least, you look back on your life and you think about those, you know, those tough times growing up. And if anybody goes back and listens to episode 117, 118 of Chris's podcast about his personal journey, freaking shit, man. There were some tough times growing up as an immigrant in the middle of this country back in the 80s and 90s. I mean, it was not a nice place. If you thought it was not a nice place now, go back back then. See some real bullying and shit going down. So you look back on those times. When you had to pull yourself up, you look back at those times when you were starting your agency, when you were going through those breakups and you had to harness that inner tenacity, that fire that you have inside. And on the flip side of it, Chris, now family, husband, father, business owner, empowering 1 billion people to do better and learn and take control of their own destiny. What keeps you focused? What is your compass? Christo, what is your North Star in life? My North Star is I am blessed to be alive, to have good health, and to have the opportunity and to live in a time and a place where an idea can be shared fairly efficiently and for very little money. I know that there's some person out there that's looking for a little bit of help, some guidance, or some representation in in their life, and I'm happy to be that person for them. Uh, In that same talk in Croatia, another speaker who's Japanese, his name is Ray, he said, look, look who spoke. Uh, There was a Filipino woman. He's a Japanese-American. I'm a Vietnamese-American. He said three Asian people, three people of color spoke in a conference. And he's like, it's not a perfect world, but it seems to be moving in the right direction. I get up for that stuff every single day of the week. And that's how you do it. Chris, I want to thank you for spending the last 48 minutes and 57 seconds with myself and my audience. I appreciate you. I want everyone to check out Chris at thefuture.com. That is spelled the F-U-T-U-R.com. And also, are we still sending people to blind.com? No, no more blind. No more blind. So don't even forget about that. And I'll link up everything in the comments here. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Hang with me for one moment as I sign off. Folks, this episode is what this show is all about. Storytelling with good people who know their shit, who add value wisdom and remind you about reflection. And I think that's a big takeaway. So as I reflect back on this, I want to thank you, Chris, for joining me. I want to thank everyone listening at home. You know where to find out more at thepodcast.com. Follow us on all the social media channels. If you like this show, leave a review or rating. It goes a long way. Remember, look out for one another, take care of each other and catch us next week for another good episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Pausecast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com.